happened. I, you know, I, I know all of us wish that God could just, you know, <clears throat> take a magic wand, touch us, and boom, it's all. And that may happen for you that way, but by and large, it's going to happen because you and I take responsibility, and we begin to engage in a process with the Lord that enables him to bring about the healing that we need in our lives. So today I want to talk about steps towards emotional health. What are the steps that we need to take towards emotional health? So if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to Ruth chapter 1. And so the book of Ruth is right after the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And uh, we are also going to be looking in John chapter 4 in the New Testament briefly uh, a little bit later on. But Ruth chapter 1, as human beings on planet Earth, uh, there is a desire within us to be filled with hopes and dreams, right? So I know, for example, for my children, my, my daughters, from the time that they could step on top of my feet and dance with me, you know, like riding and gliding on top of my feet, and, and by the way, I'm a horrible dancer, so they were put, really putting their life in danger doing that. And, and, but they had dreams, and they had dreams about their wedding day. And so from the time they were little and growing up, you know, it was, Daddy, will you marry me? Daddy, will you? And, yes, of course, I'll marry you. And they would get the wedding all planned, and they would put on their best dress, and they would have the tea party all ready. And so in their minds, uh, they dreamt of the day that they would come down the aisle and become somebody's wife. For some of us, uh, we've had other dreams. Uh, maybe you dreamed about what your career was going to be like or where you were going to live. Or so for some of you, maybe like me, you're reaching towards the age of, well, I wonder what retirement's going to be like and what, when's that going to happen and, and, and where will I live and what will I do. And so as I got, I got a lot of years yet, but, but I'm thinking about that. So, but do you ever notice that life, whatever your dreams were, that life has a way of shattering our dreams? And just because we live in this fallen world among fallen people, things happen that we never expected to happen. Um, events transpire that we could not see on the horizon coming towards us. And all of a sudden, the things that we had dreamed about all of our lives, they get shattered. Uh, you have had shattered dreams. I have had shattered dreams. And certainly, we're going to look at a woman who also had shattered dreams. This woman's name was Naomi. And she was married to a man named Elimelech. And she and Elimelech had two sons, Chilion and Kilion. What, what names, right? Uh, don't name your kids that, right? Because one meant weak and the other one meant sickly. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if they were wimps or what. But anyways, so they were residents of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means the house of bread. Uh, but during that time, uh, a great famine entered into the land. And this was at the end, you know, during the time of the judges, and uh, so they were forced to move out of, or at least Elimelech felt like, for the sake of his family, he needed to move them somewhere else so they could survive this famine. And so he picks up his, his uh, wife and, and two sons, and they head to um, a place called Moab. Now, the Moab, the Moabites were, you know, were not necessarily friendly towards the Jewish people, but they went into this land, they settled there. And during that time, uh, their two sons married two foreign girls out of Moab. Now, life seemed to be going pretty well for Naomi, right? Her dream was coming true. 
Her family was expanding. Her sons were now married. She would look forward to the day that grandchildren would come, which is what normally happens. You know, you can't wait till the grandkids get there because they like you. And uh, yeah, like, like your children didn't like you growing up. So grandkids are God's gift to you for not killing your kids. That's, that's why he does it. So, so she's got all these dreams, but then all of a sudden, right here in Ruth chapter 1, and all this happens in this one chapter, all of a sudden her husband dies. And uh, shortly thereafter, her two sons die. So now here is a, a, a mother, a wife, who had all these dreams that are suddenly shattered in a short span of time. I don't know how long it was before Elimelech died, but we do know from the latter part of Ruth that um, they were there about 10 years. So here she has, she has buried her husband, she has buried her sons, and she is left with two daughter-in-laws whom with she doesn't know really what to do. So she decides to go back to her hometown in Bethlehem. Well, as fate would have it, her daughter-in-laws start going with her. But all of a sudden, Naomi turns to them and says, you would be better off to go back to your own people. I have nothing to give you. I, I, I can't get married again. I can't have sons. Uh, yeah, and like you were going to wait for them to grow up anyways to be their, their, their wives. She says, I have nothing to give to you. Therefore, it would be far to your advantage to go back to your own home and then look for another husband. And of course, Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, takes her up on that and she leaves. But Ruth, Ruth, on the other hand, says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh-uh, no, where you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Your God's going to be my God. I'm not leaving your side. And so as Naomi comes back into her hometown, and this is where I want to pick it up, in verse 19 of chapter 1. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now look at, listen to her response. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, can this be Naomi? Don't call me that. Now, obviously, in Naomi's heart, <clears throat> she believed that the cause behind the death of her husband, her two sons, was that of God, that somehow he either caused this or he allowed it to happen. But nonetheless, I just want you to note that because of all of the trauma in her life, with her shattered dreams, she, something sprung up inside of her, right? There was hurt, and there was anger, and there was bitterness, and and, and so her identity changed. Her identity changed from, from less of being a, a child of the Almighty to more of being the victim of the Almighty. And I'm taking upon myself as my new identity. I'm just bitter. I'm hurt. I'm bitter. I've been traumatized. My dreams have been shattered. 
So don't even call me by my name. This is now my new identity. Naomi, I mean, in essence, she's saying the Lord could have done something about this, but he did nothing. And Naomi could have reached back in her mind stories that she heard about how God had intervened in other people's lives, maybe like Abraham. God came to him and called him out of a foreign land and pagan gods and said, follow me, and promised him a son. And, and all through Abraham's life, God, you know, he would bless Abraham and he would intervene in Abraham's life even when he made mistakes and poor choices because God ultimately brought about this promised son that God had, had given to him. And she's thinking to herself, well, why hasn't God done this for me? Why hasn't God divinely intervened into my life? Why did not God conceal me and seal me away from these shattered dreams? It would be like us reading the Bible and seeing God doing miraculous things in people's lives and he's healing the sick and he's providing for the poor and he's recovering, you know, sound for the deaf and the paralyzed are walking again and yet we go to the doctors and the doctor says, hey, uh, you have cancer and so we pray and we ask God for healing over that cancer but as we continue to return, the subject just keeps coming back up and nothing is happening, nothing is changing, nothing is different for me. But yet I know that God has the capability of doing that or maybe your spouse suddenly leaves you or you have a child that dies tragically, or even, you know, from a sickness or an illness. Maybe they were young, maybe they're a little bit older, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I read in the Bible where, where God brought dead people back to life, and I, I read in the Bible where Jesus just spoke a word or touched somebody and brought miraculous healing in their lives. Why is it that God is not doing this for me? And suddenly, like Naomi, you see God as someone who is inconsistent and someone who is maddening unpredictable. Or maybe you're a parent and you raised a child and that child became an honor student, and a, a youth leader, and yet another equally uh, great parents raised another child in a like fashion, only their child ends up in rehab from drugs and overdose. And they're wondering why. I have a few dreams of my own that have been shattered and have sat with many families who have experienced the shattering of their dreams, and you say things like, well, you know what? It just feels like somebody has kicked me in the stomach. It feels like I can't even catch my breath. I can't even catch a break. I, I don't even know what to do. I, I mean, I'm so mad and so angry and so frustrated. I can't, I can't even cry right now. I just feel like there is no hope, and I feel like God isn't listening, and God isn't understanding, and God is not making a move towards me. And this, I think, would have been Naomi's condition when she enters back into Bethlehem. And if Naomi had to come up to you as a friend and said, hey, I don't understand why this is going on in my life, what would you have said to her? Naomi, you know, God's God, just, just suck it up. Or just, you know, just, just shut the feelings down, move on with life. At least you have a daughter-in-law who's come back with you who's going to help you. Because in that day and time, if you were without a husband, that means you were on your own. There's no social security system there is no intervention in a widow's life. It was very dangerous in those days to be a widow. But yet God supplied her with Ruth, 
a silver lining, as we're going to find out later on in the story. And he, he brings her at the right moment, at the right time. It's at, as the barley harvest is beginning. And what makes it even more difficult for many of us who have been in church for a long time, you know as well as I do that sometimes there's this unwritten belief that if you just do certain things in a certain way and you stay faithful and obedient to God, that somehow, some way, God's going to put you in this giant plastic bubble and is going to keep these things from happening to you. And one of the ways I, I know that happens to us is because when these things do happen to us, we, we be, immediately begin to say things like, God, uh, man, I've, I've been faithful to you for years. I, I, I've read my Bible. I've studied it. I've gone to church. I've given. I've served. I've done everything I know to do. Lord, why would you let this happen to me? And the fact is, in life, there is a lot of of pain and a lot of emotional pain and healing we must deal with, and it begins early in life, and it compounds itself. So last week, we talked about the five pits of pain that happen early on in life. Usually, these are things that are outside of your control, and then when you carry that load into life, and then other things begin to happen. Other things begin to transpire. Other things begin to unfold that create additional emotional pain and turmoil in your life. And it becomes like uh, carrying a backpack. You know, uh, this backpack doesn't have a whole lot in it right now, and it's pretty light. But I know, like, Norm likes to, uh, he, he's one of these guys that's a hiker. And so one of the things he said, because Brian and I are talking about going hiking with him, and so one of the things he warned us was, hey, when you take a backpack, don't pile it full of stuff. It may feel light in the beginning, but, you know, 10 miles into the hike, all of a sudden, it just keeps weighing you down. And this is really a description of life for us, because early on in life, in those five pitfalls, uh, we, we pack rocks in our backpack. And, it, and maybe, I don't know how many rocks got packed into your life early on. It may feel heavy. It may have felt light. But as you journey through life and you have other painful events and other traumatic events, people say things, do things, most of the pain that you and I are going to experience throughout our lifetime is going to come at the hands of somebody else, the things that they say, the things that they do, and we just keep packing the backpack full of rocks. And over time, it just begins to weigh you down. And over time, it begins to affect the way that you walk, it begins to affect the way that you feel. It begins to impact the way that you see things. It, it begins to taint the lens through which you are viewing life and especially the, the lens through which you are viewing God himself. And this is where Naomi was. This is where we oftentimes find ourselves in life. And here's the thing, is that when we are carrying all these things, we then begin to move into the process of self-medicating, right? We, we don't want to feel the pain anymore. We're tired of carrying the load. We, we just want relief, all right? Even if I know that my medicating, it, my, my form of relief is not healthy for me, it's really not good for me, and it may be very addictive in my life, it doesn't matter. At least for this moment of time, this, this short span of time, I just don't have to feel anything. 
Now, the same part of your brain that processes physical pain is also the same part of your brain that processes emotional pain. So it doesn't matter if you have suffered emotional trauma, your brain cannot distinguish the difference between that pain and the pain of somebody stabbing you in the leg. The, the pain is still going through the same process of your brain, and it can't distinguish between the two. But here's the thing. If we get physically hurt, you know, if let's say I'm in a, uh, in a wreck. Uh, uh, let's say I dump my motorcycle, and you drive up, and uh, I'm bleeding, and you take a belt off and put a tourniquet on my leg, and you're going to call an ambulance, and that ambulance is going to pick me up, take me to the emergency room. A team of doctors are going to immediately, you know, pounce on me, and they're going to do everything they can possibly to save my life, to stop the bleeding, you know, to, to patch me up, and to allow me to go through the process of healing. Well, here's the problem with emotional pain is that you can be sitting next to somebody who is carrying so much emotional pain in their lives, but you can't see it. You don't know it. There's nothing physically bleeding on the outside, but the same part of their brain that would have processed that kind of trauma on their body is now trying to process the trauma of emotional pain, and there's no difference except nobody's picking them up and taking them to an emergency room. There's no battery of doctors who's working on them to get them nursed back to emotional health. And so uh, there's not a person in this room who can escape it. And consequently, we learn to adapt, to adjust, to face life in the wake of our personal disappointments, our private losses, our public fiascos, and the wound, the woundedness within us over time gets infected. It's kind of like your physical body. If you do not manage the wound well, it can become infected. You can contract septus and there is infection in the blood system in your body. Well, the same thing is true on the emotional level. This is why the Bible says, be very careful to let no root of bitterness to spring up within you because, watch this, because if you do, it will ultimately defile the entire body. And experiencing emotional health is just as serious as experiencing physical health because you cannot have physical health for very long without emotional health. And you cannot have relational health for very long without emotional health because that emotional trauma never stays compartmentalized in one area of your life, but it bleeds over into every area. So here comes Naomi back to her hometown among the women who knew her back when, and they, didn't, they, 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 they can't even kind of recognize her because now her physical features have changed because she's carrying this load uh, of bitterness and just this anger and this hurt and these shattered dreams, and she, she believes that God is the one who instituted it upon her, and she says, don't even, don't even call me by my name. And so I want to talk today about your emotional health um, and how, what are some habits 
that can help you begin the process of healing so that you don't spend your entire life carrying this backpack that you just keep adding the rocks to and it just keeps weighing you down and so now everything that you're experiencing through your emotional trauma is now being predicated upon those around you and so one of the questions I'm going to ask you later on is a question I'm going to put right up front, a question you really ought to ask yourself from time to time. I wonder what it's like to be on the other side of me. When I'm carrying around all of this rooted bitterness and hatred and anger and resentment and all of these things, and that begins oozing itself out through my personality, it begins oozing itself out through my gifts and my relationships and so you have to ask yourself the question, I wonder what it's like to live on the other side of me. Because you've never lived on the other side of you. But everybody else has to live on the other side of you. And it may be that they can see things that you have become blind to. They can see things and detect things that you have so shoved on the inside. And so, you know, and I know for... For ladies, I know for you, it's a little easier for you to talk about your emotions. Have you ever listened to conversations between, you know, men and women? Like if you put a group of women together, they talk about everything, cry a lot, and have a lot of handkerchiefs on. Yeah, so you put a group of men together, you know, it's about sports, it's about our jobs, it's about the weather, it's, it, it, that's about as deep as we get emotionally. And for some of us, it's because we, that's the way we were raised. Like, you know, hey, you know, man up, uh, don't be a sissy. You know, be a man. You can't, you can't feel those things. You can't talk about those things. What would change in our lives? And this is the question I asked last week. What would change in our lives if we spent as much time on our emotional health as we do on our physical health? Because some of you, you may need a lot of that. I, I recognize that I believe that marriages would be better. Relationships would be better. You know, marriages is not never about marrying the right person. It's about becoming the right person. I can't become the right person if I'm carrying around, around this backpack with me everywhere I go because all of this stuff, this hurt and all this stuff that's in here is going to spill out on my wife. It's going to spill out on my kids. You know, my children, I, I asked them one time when they became adults because they think better uh, and they like me more. As I said, hey, what was it like to live on the other side of me? What was it like to be on the other side of me as your father? That was a very interesting conversation. And uh, they, they pointed out some things, both positive as well as negative, things that I never even thought about. You know, it's like, really? Out of all the things, this is the one thing you... Th right? So, so one of the things, you know, they, they, sometimes you get smarter as a parent. Like, you know, it was a rule in our house for our daughters. They couldn't date until they were age 16, Right? And say, well, what's the magical number? There's just no magical number. We just felt like they had to reach that maturity level before they could date one-on-one. -on -one. Now, they could group date, uh, you know, at a little younger age, but for us. And so my daughter, oldest daughter, just complained and complained and complained about that. And, oh, Dad, I'm the only one in high school who can't date till I'm 16 years old. No, you're not. Your sister can't either. So you're not, you're all, you, there's somebody else you can commiserate with. But now as adults, after they got older, had their own kids... They said, Dad, that's one of the wisest things you and Mom could have done. All right, so, so what is it like? I mean, marriages would be, relationships would be better. You, you'll unpack your feelings. You know, it, it, feelings are more than just, oh, I'm happy or I'm sad, right? There are feelings like I'm, I'm, I'm excited, frustrated, angry, sad, critical, humiliated, 
insecure, annoyed, infuriated, skeptical, judgmental, on and on it goes. Most of us tend to neglect positive habits or behaviors that will strengthen our emotional health. We neglect those things. And I want to give you four of them today. And these are things you really do not want to neglect. Why do we neglect or avoid them? Because they're not easy, right? We, we, are, we live in a society where we want everything quick, right? If my car breaks down today, I want to be able to take it to the dealership tomorrow and, and give it to them at 8 o'clock in the morning and pick it up when I get off work that evening, right? We, we want things that instant, and we think that our emotional healing is going to come that instantaneously without any effort on our part. This is where the responsibility comes in. Pretending feels safer than honesty and vulnerability, but it leaves us with a pretend version of ourselves. So here's what Jesus taught. Here's our big idea for the day. Failing to establish healthy emotional habits will ultimately undermine the relationships you care about the most. See, if you, if you keep carrying the backpack, the people that are around you, the closest to you, your spouse, your children, your extended family, co-workers, you know, they're going, to get the, they're going to get the spillover of all that. So if you want them to reap out of your life something different, then you have to sow into your life something different. So go to John chapter 4 for a moment, and, and this is the concept that Jesus himself taught. Jesus was all about, he talked a lot about sowing and reaping. And um, so in John chapter 14, beginning in verse uh, 31, I'm sorry, John 4, I'm looking at 4 and saying 14, (laughs) but, all right, so John chapter 4, verse 31, okay, so so Jesus, he's talked to the woman at the well, and his disciples come back, and um, here's what it says. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what healthy people do, right? They, they eat something. You, you, you need something to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. You know nothing about. And my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the harvest. Now, four months more. All right, so like four months, I got plenty of time, right, till the harvest. It's kind of like college students. At the beginning of the semester, uh, the professors hand out the syllabus, and they always say the same thing. You know what would be wise for you? Uh, at the beginning of the semester to look at all the assignments, get them all lined up, and start working on them. But what does every college student think? Oh, I do that. I've got four months, right? And so we end up waiting till the, like, the, the day of or the day before, and, and yeah. So, so Jesus is saying, I, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe to harvest. Even now, the reaper draws the wage, his wages. Even now, he harvests the crops for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Watch this. Other, this is one you underline. Others have done the hard work, 
and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And so what is Jesus saying here? There's a harvest that's coming. Now, obviously, he is talking about the context of eternal life. He's saying, listen, I'm the one who's going to do the hard work. All right, I'm, I'm about to offer myself up as a sacrifice for your benefit. I'm going to sow that so that you can reap the harvest of my payment for sin's debt on the cross. And so you and I, um, we have reaped the harvest of what Jesus has sown. That's how we were saved. That's how we became followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let's translate this beyond just the obvious. Because the principle that he's laying down here is that if I will put the habits necessary in my life to keep me emotionally healthy, not only will I reap the benefits of sowing the right things, but those around me also will reap the benefits of me being emotionally healthy. In other words, when my wife and I were having marital problems, one of the things that we thought was, my Marla, she would probably, we went to counseling, hey, if you could get my husband fixed, everything would be great. And I'm thinking, Amen, right? So she's still saying that. So, so <coughs> sorry, we've been in counseling for 40 years. So, she, so I'm thinking the same thing, right? You know, if you could get my wife fixed up, everything would be great. And I shared with our men this morning, I said, listen, what, the thing that God taught me, God said, listen, it's not about you marrying the right person or her getting fixed up. It's about you becoming the right person. If you will sow the right habits into your life, you're going to reap the benefit for that, from that for yourself personally because now you're going to be a much healthier person emotionally and in maturity and, and many other ways. And as a result of you being better, she gets to reap the benefits of that. And so God spoke to my wife and said, hey, you need to respect your husband. To which she told God, and I'm, I'm glad I was standing back, lightning, uh, God, he doesn't deserve respect. And God said to her, I didn't ask you if he deserved it. I just said you need to start respecting him. And so when she began sowing those habits and began reaping the consequences of that, now I began to reap the benefits from what she was sowing into her life. So in the fill in the blank, it simply says this. Others will reap from the emotional habits that you sow. If you spend your life carrying this thing, and you never put habits in place in your life that's going to help you unpack this and drop it eventually, because you refuse to sow those habits into your life, you'll never reap the benefits, and everybody else is going to get the fallout of your life. But if you choose to sow into your life the habits necessary to experience emotional healing, not only does that benefit your life, but it benefits everybody around you relationally. And that's what we want to go for, right? Oh, right? Yes. All right. There we go. Okay, so, um, so let me speed this up a little bit because I'm, I'm about out of time. So let me give you some of these habits because my hope is that you will establish some new habits um, that are, are going to be sown into your life and, and there's going to be an outcome that will not only benefit you but others. So here's step number one is you want to you feel your feelings, all right? But you don't want them to drive your life. 
right? Feelings are feelings. They're amoral, right? The feel, God gave you feelings. They have no, no moral compass. They're just feelings. That's just what you're feeling. The worst thing you can do is to stuff them, suppress them, try to shove them down, just try to say, like, I, I said, well, hey, Greg, uh, you know, you notice you, you, you seem to be a little agitated. What's going on in your life? Nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. Standard answer, I'm fine. Code four, don't, don't dig there. Don't pick up that rock. You're not going to like what's under it, and I don't want to deal with it. I'm just moving through, forward in life. I'm just making my way. I'm going to do the best I can. And, uh, you know, this is just the way life is. It's as good as it gets. And that's just going to have to be that way. It is, it is dangerous to mask your feelings, to pretend like they're not there, just to muscle through life. But on the other hand, your emotions should never be in the driver's seat of your life. That's a horrible way to live. Because your emotions can take you all over the place, places you don't want to go and places you don't need to go. Who's supposed to be the driver's seat of our lives is the Holy Spirit of God. I want him driving my life. I don't want my emotions driving my life. But if I'm going to pull the emotion out of the driver's seat that constantly wants to be in there, then I have to surrender to and submit that to the healing process of the Spirit of God. So this just has to be a habit. Man, if you're feeling something, there's a reason behind what you're feeling. There's something that is driving that. And if it remains unhealed, if it remains untouched, it just keeps coming back up. It's like getting on a carousel. You just keep going round and round and round, the same old thing over and over and over and over again. Listen, here's the fill in the blank. You cannot change what you're willing to tolerate. And if you're willing to tolerate those things, then nothing will ever change in your life. You are never going to move forward. You're never going to have the victory. Remember Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly. Our enemy said, I've come to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the ways that he does that is by getting us to put our emotions in the driver's seat of our life. This is why couples... Uh, you know, if I've got underlying anger issues and, and couple, you know, husband and wife, they're exploding on each other. And so what happens is that you begin saying things. And what the Bible says, power of life and death is in your tongue. And you can actually shred somebody and just tear them down emotionally and psychologically and think nothing of it. And then come back later on and say, oh, Sorry, didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. And it's, it's being driven by pain that has never been healed. Number two is you must be willing to take responsibility for your emotional health. Listen, plans do not implement themselves. If you don't have a plan for getting emotionally healthy and implement that plan, again, Nothing changes. This is why we can be followers of Jesus, sit in churches for 20, 30 years, and have nothing change in our lives. We're still just the same old cranky individual we've always been because we're being driven by our emotions rather than by the Spirit of God. Step number two is you need to find emotionally healthy people you can dialogue with 
continuously. This is a journey that you must take responsibility for, but it's not necessarily a journey you take on your own. There are a lot of wise people I attached myself to to say to them, listen, this is what I've experienced. This is what's going on inside of me emotionally. I'm trying to get a handle on this. I really want God to heal this. And then just like spill everything and say, let me tell you what happened, what's going on, where I think this is originating from. And so you just start dialoguing with an individual about someone who's far wiser than me, someone who's at a place that is different than me. And um, yeah, it is the wisest thing you can do. I mean, I'd love for us to be here in rows, but if you really want to find some healing, you need to get in some circles. Really, that's what small group ought to be about, is that if you're a small group of men or women or co, you know, co, it's a co-ed class, is that you ought to be able, the church was designed that we could be open and honest because it had Naomi come into the, the normal uh, small group in a Baptist church, they were like, that woman's nuts. Get her out of here. Uh, we don't want her in our group. Oh, she's crazy. I don't. We wouldn't have known what to do with her. And sometimes you just don't. You just listen. And you let them share. And so this is essential. Whether it's in a small group or you find a trusted friend or a counselor, you need somebody that you can dialogue. You The likelihood of you finding healing and unpacking this backpack on your own is slim to none. You need outside ears, outside eyes. You need a spirit-filled person whom the Lord can use to begin helping you unpack and to see things. Because remember, you don't know what it's like to live on the other side of you. Right? We tend to think that everything we see, everything we feel, everything we've experienced is absolutely legit. And it's, and it's the way I see it, the way I felt it, the way it happened. And sometimes we have great blind spots. We all do that someone else can point out. Number four or three is formulate then a process to receive feedback from others regarding that question. The question I've already stated, what is it like to be on the other side of me? Because we're all biased about ourselves. And the way I see the world is the right way, right? (laughs) It kind of shows up in a lot of different ways in our lives. And so why is this question valuable? Because you've never sat on the other side of you. You don't know what it's like. You think you do, but you really don't. And it's valuable even if you determine what they may say to you is wrong and, and I know it's a scary question, and it's not one that we, you know, like to put out there for people, but the idea is you want to take the feedback, and you want to prioritize, you want to take assessment of what is said so that it begins to be fitted into the healing process that you need to go through. And so when everyone around me says, you know, Greg, we see this in you. And I say, oh, nah, that's not me. That's not who I am. But you've got 14 other people saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much who you are. All right, so I've shared with you before, you know, I'm, I'm a dreamer. You know what dreamers do is dreamers talk out loud, right? We, talk, we, we, we process our thoughts by what we say, all right? 
So early on, especially in marriage and even, even today, I'll admit it, it's good for uh, my, my health but bad for my reputation. So I, I talk out loud all the time processing information. So early on, Marla would hear me say things, and she thought to herself, well, Greg's going to, on Thursday, he's going to get this done, and Friday, he's going to get this done. And, and she had it all lined up, like all that I was going to accomplish, and then I did none of that. And so it, it would make her mad, right? She, she'd get, and she may say or may not say anything. She may just stew on it for a while, and, and then I'm off talking, you know, about this, this, and this. And, and uh, you know, so in her mind, well, okay, I'm going to give him a second chance, and he's going to do this, and, then, and none of that happens. And it's just, then she's getting infuriated, right? She's really angry at me, and she says then, hey, stop saying anything because you get my hopes up only to let me down. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I, I never made any promises. All right, Barb's gone through this with me as her, her boss, right? Because she's our, our planner. She's the organizer. She's the administrator. And, and I'm, you know, going off in staff meeting about this, this, and I'm thinking out loud and processing. She's writing it all down. I'm going to have to do this, this, and this, and this. And she asked me about it the next week, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So now she doesn't write anything. So this is, this is valuable information for you. Number four, focus on deepening your walk with the Lord. This is what I call the X factor, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this next week. But, um, but I just want you to know that if you're not careful, if you're not careful, Satan will seek to devour you. All right, so let me wrap it up with, with this. I'm going to give you four ways. Listen to me. In our day and time, I'm going to give you four ways that Satan will use social media to devour you in the midst of your pain. I'm not against social media. Social media can be leveraged for the gospel and is being leveraged for the gospel. I understand that, get that. But there are four ways, if you're not careful, in the midst of your emotional pain that has not been healed, has not been dealt with, um, he, if you're not careful, he will use it against you. So here's number one, is that Satan wants your marriage, all right? When I carry this backpack around, and there's a lot of emotional turmoil going on inside of me, and I'm really feeling bad about myself, and I'm feeling bad about my marriage, all of a sudden I jump on social media, and I, a trip across a girl I used to date back in high school or a friend I had in high school was female. And all of a sudden we engage in you know, a light conversation back and forth and it all seems so innocent and it all seems so outside the realm of you know, nothing's going to happen here and then all of a sudden uh, you know, I'm not crossing any lines here and so gradually you begin to push the boundary further and further and then it becomes an emotional affair and, uh, and it can end up being a physical affair. It happens all the time. And every couple that I've ever talked to about this always say the same thing. I never thought it could happen to me. Trust me, if you're not dealing with your emotional health, it can and probably will happen to you. And it's one of the ways that he does it because so many things can be hidden, and that's why I always stress, if you're a couple, man, have a Facebook account together, have shared passwords, or at least give your spouse access to your accounts. Keep yourself accountable, otherwise, what is hidden 
will eventually get exposed, but by the time it gets exposed, it's going to be down so far down the road that Satan has worked his way into the destruction of your relationship. Number two, Satan wants your pure thoughts, right? If you're fighting sin and lust, I suggest you break from social media, perhaps even indefinitely, because your relationship with God is far more valuable than Facebook. It is far too easy to get yourself engaged in pornography and all kinds of other things that come scrolling across your screen that can be done in private that all of a sudden begins to change your mind and your thought process. Satan will whisper to you, it's okay, you can look, there's no harm, it can be your little pet sin, but I'm telling you, it cannot be your little pet sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, that those who are pure in heart will see God. You need to get rid of everything in your life that hinders that. That is a pathway, a habit to emotional health. Number three, Satan wants your time. Social media can be a very handy tool in the hands of Satan to rip your attention and your affection away from the Lord. Listen, Psalm 1 says, blessed are those who what? Who who dive into the relationship, dive into the word, who are drinking from the water of life, and and they, they are the ones who are healthy, and they're the ones who cannot be shaken, cannot be torn away. If you're not careful, you, I'm like you, you can, especially when you're an emotional wreck, you just don't want to feel something. So it might be your method of self-medicating. You just sit in your bedroom or on your chair and for hours you can, you don't think you're doing it for hours, but you know, five minutes, oh, I'm just going to be on here five minutes and now an hour, two hours later, you're still scrolling. And as you're scrolling and you're going through information and, 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 and you're reading the highlight reels of everybody else's life, You think that everybody is happy and everything is wonderful in their lives and that does nothing more but feed your depression and feed your anxiety about what's happening in your life. I think if Naomi would have had Facebook, it would have ruined her. Seriously. Number four, Satan wants your worship. I don't mean devil worshiping with pentagrams and black robes or anything like that. Satan's masterpiece is self-sufficient people who just try to make their life comfortable. They're not, they're, they're just not, they're not going to, they just adjust to the world and they just dream of no better place in life. You know, the, nothing's ever going to get better in my life and nothing's ever going to change. And this is just the way life is. And oh, 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 I can't wait till the day that Jesus comes back and rescues me from all of this. That is not the life to which God has called you. Satan's masterpiece, on the other hand, we prefer to live elsewhere because we know that our deep joy is not in this world. Our deep joy is on the things above and everything that God has to filter down from the heavens to the earth into our lives. That I'm not living for self, which is what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to live for self. I am living a life of sacrifice. It is no... It is no um, is no wonder that God's emblem of the Christian life is a cross. A cross is an instrument of death. It is death to self so that I'm not just living for self, but I'm living for the sake of others, especially for those who are outside the kingdom of God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, tells us, glorify God in whatever you do. This includes, I believe, social media. So we can either wield Facebook for God's glory or we can yield it for Satan's glory. You just got to learn how to distinguish the two. 
failing to establish emotional, healthy emotional habits will ultimately undermine all of the relationships that are precious to you, that you care about the most. You've got to unpack the backpack and begin the process. I've given you four steps. If you will start sowing those steps into your life, you will begin to reap the benefits, and not only will it benefit you, but it will benefit every relationship around you. It is the concept of sowing and reaping. And lastly, you have to go through the process if you're going to receive God's promise. All right, we'll talk about that more next week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you (laughs) that, God, you have given us everything necessary to experience the hope and the healing that you desire for our lives. God, I pray for every person here. Lord, I don't know where they are in their, their level of emotional health, but you do. So, Lord, I I pray, Holy Spirit, that now you would just calm our hearts, calm our thoughts, just like quiet down the RPMs and just listen to you. Which of these four areas do we need to be mindful of? Which of these four areas do we need to begin sowing into our lives? I pray, Holy Spirit, that you you would speak that into us. Maybe it's all of them. Maybe we're doing some of them. Maybe we need to go to a, de- a greater degree. But Lord, I just believe that for every person here, that is the desire of their heart to have emotional health. And if it is not, God, I pray that you will just break that off of them because that is satanic in origin. It is not of you. You want us to experience emotional health. You want us to break the chains that hold us to the past. You want us to move into the glorious future that you have for us. And even when we encounter shattered dreams, Father, you want us to have such a level of emotional health that we just absolutely face that and encounter that from a whole different perspective with a brand new set of lenses than we've ever had before. And God, I know that's your heart and your desire for every person. So I pray that they will make the decision today, just one decision, to take responsibility for their emotional health and begin the process of sowing into their lives that which you want them to reap for their benefit and the benefit of others around them. Is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.